This show is created for adult audiences only. Our show notes include content warnings and other helpful information. We strongly recommend taking a moment to assess the situation before continuing. Let's begin. Episode 95. The Kentucky Goblins. Revisited. It was a hot August evening in the summer of 1955. The Kentucky sun bare down on the Sutton homestead in the middle of rural Kelly and Hopkinsville in Christian County. The family gathered in their unpainted house without running water, television, radio, or TV as they prepared for a family dinner. Billy Ray Taylor and his wife June were visiting Lucky Sutton and his family from out of town. Billy Ray and Lucky had worked together previously through a traveling carnival. When the family realized that they were out of water in the house, Billy Ray volunteered to go fetch some from the well to show his appreciation for the Sutton's hospitality. While gathering water, Billy Ray saw a flash of light pass through the evening sky. It looked almost like a silver object, bright with an exhaust of all colors of the rainbow. What was peculiar about this particular object was that it was completely silent. He watched it pass overhead till it stopped briefly and then descended quickly and out of sight behind the tree line. He could tell that it had crashed or touched down just beyond the woods. Out of sheer disbelief in what he had just seen, Billy Ray raced inside the house to report what had just happened. Laughter filled the room as he proceeded to tell them. Everyone inside of the house thought he was telling a lie or playing a prank on Lucky as they did from time to time. After realizing that he was serious, the laughter became shock and confusion. They attempted to reason with Billy Ray, stating that there was a logical explanation from what had happened. It could be a meteor or a shooting star. After all, it had been a very hot day and heat exhaustion can occur very easily in the Kentucky sun. All of a sudden, the Sutton's dogs started barking frantically. By this time, the sun had went down and darkness had settled in. The two men went outside to survey the scene and looked for any sign of what spooked the dogs and anything else to prove what Billy Ray had seen. There was nothing, not even a sign of the crash Billy Ray spoke of. No smoke, no debris or anything. At this point, Lucky was skeptical, but knew something had spooked Billy Ray, enough to cause him to race into the house and the dog's incessant barking. After being unsuccessful in finding anything, the two decided to go back inside. While walking back towards the house, they heard a sound that came from the woods. Startled, they turned back, only to see a faint glow coming from deeper in the forest. They couldn't quite make out the glow, but it was low to the ground. While continuing to stare at the glow, it started to come closer. They stood there, completely still as it approached them. Once it came into view, they could make out distinct features. It appeared to be a short, humanoid creature, 
about three to three and a half feet in length, with short legs, long arms that extended almost to the ground, with what looked like talons for hands, and an oversized round head. To their amazement, the eyes glowed a yellowish tint, and the creature shined in the moonlight, almost as if it was made of a polished metal or silver. The two men stood there baffled for a moment, till anxiety and terror set in. They raced inside the house to grab their guns, a 20-gauge shotgun and a 22 pistol. They ran out of the house, barely making it outside before they started shooting at the creature, not phasing it whatsoever. Its arms shot straight up as if it were being held at gunpoint and ran towards the house. Before making it to the back door, the creature did a flip and scurried back towards the woods. After the incident, the two men went back inside. A little while later, they saw the creature outside the window. Both guns fired, shooting holes in the screen, again not phasing the creature. It then flipped and scurried back into the woods. Another came running for the front door. Bullets continued to fly as the two men shot out the door towards the creature. Billy Ray then stepped outside the front door under the overhang of the roof. Unbeknownst to him, but seen by everyone else, was a small arm reaching down just above Billy Ray's head. The group screamed and yelled for Billy Ray, pulling him back into the house, while Lucky shot above his head at the overhang. Lucky proceeded to shoot at another creature in a nearby tree. The creature floated, much like a feather, to the ground and ran into the woods. A scream came from the bedroom the children were in as one of the creatures peered through the window back at them. Lucky's brother JC shot through the window back at the creature as it scurried away. The creatures never tried to enter the house, but seemed very interested in the children as they periodically peered through the windows at them. The family then gathered inside, waiting in terror for any more creatures or any additional sounds or movement. They would occasionally hear scratching on the roof and the windows and see the creature staring back at them. Outside, several of the creatures scurried from one end to the other, as if patrolling the area. After several hours and a period of silence, a little after 11pm, the entire family, Billy Ray and his wife June included, quickly made their way to the Hopkinsville police station. Arriving at the police station, the entire family raced in, explaining what had happened at their home. Each member of the incident described it in detail, all accounts matching the others. Billy Ray explained the object in the sky and believed it to be a UFO that had crash-landed on the Sutton's property. They described the creatures as gray with greenish tint to their skin, about three to three and a half feet in length, with oversized heads with pointy bat-like ears and glowing eyes. They stated the creatures appeared to be metallic with long arms and talons for fingers and a stout midsection to their bodies. They told the police they shot at the creatures and the bullets seemed to not do any harm and in fact appeared to bounce off of them, making a sound that one would hear while shooting at a tin can. The police didn't quite know what to make of the incident and found it slightly amusing. However, they took it seriously when they realized the men were sober and the women and children were just as terrified as they were. They decided to dispatch police to the residence to survey the scene and report what they had found. In total, they sent four city police, five state troopers, three deputy sheriffs, and four military police to the residence. Upon arriving at the Sutton's residence, they found shell casings everywhere, windows that had been shot out, damage to the exterior and interior of the property, 
but no signs of the creatures. It was easy to see that something had occurred earlier that evening, but there was no definitive proof of the creatures the family and friends had spoke of aside from a strange patch of glowing soil. A further investigation was then done as the police interviewed neighbors and anyone else around the area to attempt to further solidify the Sutton's and Taylor's accounts of the evening. Some of the surrounding neighbors reported seeing strange lights in the woods, but assumed it was the Sutton's. They also claimed to hear gunshots that were fired, but shrugged it off as the Sutton's attempting to ward off any wild animals trying to come onto their property. After a period of time and minimal evidence of the events, the officers left the residence. Later that night, between 2.30 a.m. and 3.30 a.m., matriarch of the household, Glenny Lankford, awoke to find some of the creatures by her bedside window, with its claw-like hand on the screen. The creatures had returned late in the night, but left as soon as the sun started to rise. Over the following months, the media, radio, TV, and local publications all wanted to interview the Suttons and their friends. For a short period of time, the Suttons were very open about what they had experienced, and were happy to speak to the media, till they realized that they were being mocked and ridiculed and refused to comment on the matter any further. One thing remained. Their stories never changed, even years later. The Sutton family and visiting friends the Taylors would never forget or get over that night. They would constantly be on the lookout for anything strange and avoided going into the woods unless necessary. Out of fear of the creatures returning the constant mockery of the media, the Suttons moved away several months later and never returned. Welcome, campers, to Campfire Tales of the Strange and Unsettling. We're your hosts. I'm Ryan. And I'm Jordan. And now, the debrief. We're talking about aliens here. Oh, we are. Yeah, it's it's obvious. Yep. It kind of goes without saying at this point. Yeah, when I when I first heard about the subject, I was wondering, you know, aliens, cryptids, what? But the sighting of, you know, in the sky of the light, pretty much. Uh, that kind of gives it away. Yeah. What's kind of strange is at this area in Kentucky, uh, for a long time, there were reports of cave goblins. Okay. Basically, these creatures that resided in these caves, these old mine shafts. Um, that would come out either late at night or come out just to uh, kind of wreak havoc on the area or people would just randomly report seeing them and they lived in the mines. Um, and that's where this kind of originated. Um, it's the same same area, uh, same, you know, kind of same mindset. But like you said, with the obviously the object in the sky, uh, and as Billy Ray pointed out, a silver object, completely silent, uh, with a trail of rainbow colors, basically, um, you know, of smoke coming off of it, and then crash landed, but didn't make a sound. Here's a question, because I know you mentioned that the police said that they were they were sober, right? Correct. But like, this is in the fifties, right? Nineteen fifty-five. You said nineteen uh, August twenty-first, nineteen fifty-five. Okay. So like. What are the real odds that, like, a couple of carnies got back together for a reunion hangout and they weren't drinking at all? (laughs) There was no drinking? Well, just to get into this, you know, there there are a lot of a lot of theories that are based around this one one in particular, just to just to dive into it. 
uh, actually came from one of the policemen that was at the scene, uh, one of the deputy sheriffs. He stated that it was an animal. Uh, he described it basically as everyone being drunk and someone was tossing a cat onto the screen door to scare people inside. Okay. Uh, which is entirely inera- inaccurate uh, because Glennie Lankford, being the matriarch of the house, uh, J.C. Sutton and Lucky Sutton were two sons. Uh, their wives, along with several of their friends and everything, were all there. Uh, but Glennie Lankford, uh, being this uh, very Christian woman that she is, never allowed alcohol on the property nor them to curse inside of the house. So that is uh, that is one of the one of the biggest things. And again, according to the police, they were able to determine that uh, neither J.C. Lucky or Billy Taylor had been drinking whatsoever. They were completely sober. Um, and there was even a recount, basically stating that uh, you know these are these are people that you know they don't get scared. They reach for their guns and they you know they go guns a blazing, basically. Right. You know, like in this. But they ended up showing at the police station entirely terrified, uh, which is something that it was completely out of character for them. Right. Because they aren't the kind to like run to the police when they have a problem. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And and so, again, in, at that point, you know, they did uh, they did confirm that, you know, all of the gentlemen were sober. Uh, no one had been drinking. Um, they were able to determine that somehow. I don't know. In the 50s. I mean, you know, this has been a long time ago. I don't know the means of what they had available. I'm sure there was some form of breathalyzer or something uh, that they probably used as they were going over their accounts of the story. Uh, Which strange is every story matched the other person's story to a T. Even describing the the creatures that were on the farm. The physical description of the creatures is pretty wild. You know what it reminds me of? What's that? It reminds me of a Pokemon. <laughs> it really does. A Pokemon called Sableye. It looks exactly okay. the way you describe these creatures. I see where you're coming from? Yeah. Um, <laughs> one thing mentioning uh, previously in the description was that they had a very round head with bat-like ears and glowing eyes. Um, it was theorized that they were wearing helmets. Right. The helmets, uh, the ears on the helmets were more of like an antennae, basically. Uh, their means of communication um, and weren't actually their physical, you know, physical heads. I mean, we think of these and I immediately think of the greys. A smaller version of the greys, because I mean, the greys in most cases are going to be about six feet tall or so, uh, depending on your interpretation of them. Uh, but these were completely described as the greys with, again, a greenish hue or a tint to their skin. Right. Um, but yeah, it was theorized that they were wearing helmets, uh, which caused their bat-like ears and these extra features that we wouldn't expect. Right. See, that's another thing I was going to ask, because you said in the account that they said that when they shot them, it sounded like... The bullets bounced off like a tin can, right? A so tin the, can, exactly. So the question is, I mean, beyond just wearing helmets, are we talking biological aliens, or could they be? Could they have been technological in the first place? You know, I would like, personally, I would like to think uh, it's biological, um, that there's some form of, of armor, essentially, uh, whether it be some force field, 
uh, something that surrounds their bodies. I mean, it could be literally their skin. It could be bouncing bullets off of it. It could be metallic. It could be, sure. you know, some form of metal or silver that these bullets could be literally just bouncing off of and making that, that pink sound that you hear right. when you're shooting at a tin can. Yeah. I only ask because there's an entire sect of ufologists that don't uh-huh. believe in the in the biological UFOs at all. You know, like they they wholeheartedly believe that when you see a UFO, that that is probably a you know it is extraterrestrial, but that it's most likely essentially a drone. Yeah, I actually uh, got into this rabbit hole of these people, ufologists and people the like that consider aliens to be not extraterrestrial uh being from another planet but being from another dimension right basically exactly yeah um which is entirely plausible um you know and since kind of diving into that uh, that idea i actually spent some time some time reading up on it and honestly it does make a lot of sense um, I completely believe in multi dimensions, one hundred percent. And I think, you know, obviously anyone from another dimension to us is going to be an alien. They're going to be an outside person, being or whatever they are. And you know, so again, I, I kind of see it like that. But also, technological, I could see that being a thing as well, especially with an with an alien civilization, most likely being as very very much more advanced than we are i wholeheartedly believe in the titans and that whole aspect yeah um which i 100 i'm on board and i would love to go over that one day but uh you know and i i could see that being kind of like a, a touch on that or um you know so again in this case i think that these beings in my opinion were biological especially I did mention the glowing soil that was found. Um, and that was reported that that was after shooting one of them. Okay. So they either emitted some form of bodily fluid. or sure. Blood. Uh, blood, if you will. Right. Uh, that, again, is, is kind of like a very luminescent, uh, luminescent glow that remained on the ground. And that was even after the police came and surveyed the scene. That was actually one of the reports that they had was that there was a very strange glow in this patch of soil that they had found. And they couldn't, they couldn't figure out what it was from. There was no... I know some southern states have, like, types of moss that are bioluminescent. I don't know if it have if they have those as far north as Kentucky, but like there's literally moss that glows in the dark. You know what I mean? That's what I thought of when you first brought that up. There's another theory that re- that relies on foxfire, which I'm assuming is what you're what you're yeah, mentioning. That's exactly what I'm talking about. So foxfire is a bioluminescent fungus that grows on decaying wood. Um, and so they tried, you know, some theorists tried to write it off that this glowing patch of soil that they found was just foxfire, basically just a glowing fungus. Yeah. If you will. Okay. Which I personally, I find that very hard to believe. Uh, it, 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 it's possible. 
Uh, because again, you know that is that is a thing. That is one hundred percent. You know the Foxfire, especially, uh, which it is, if I'm not mistaken, in um, you know in Kentucky as well, uh, especially in some deeper forests. Yeah. Um, and so that was that was another big theory that had kind of went around as well is that you know that's all it was tried to write it off as that and you know there was some scientific explanation for it okay one thing that to me lends a lot of credence to this story is that it's so early that it's it's 1955 right because a lot of people point to a lot of skeptics point to the fact that oh it's an odd coincidence that all of these you know alien sightings just happen to look the way aliens tend to look in film you know and that's where I think some of the, the greenish hue or tent came from. Because, you know, ultimately when describing these figures of these creatures, um, they were more so that reminiscent of the Greys. Right. But in this case, they had explained, you know, they had basically provided the information that they had a slight green tint to it. But ultimately they were silver is how they were described. Okay. Which, you know, being especially in the 40s when... Uh, aliens really I mean that was kind of the start of the the high point of bringing aliens into the picture of them you know getting into media into pictures and things like that you know I could definitely see that influencing a bit but ultimately every single member of the household there were 11 people in that house yeah on the night of the incident so I mean you know, as there was the mother, there was the two sons, their wives, along with a friend, uh, their wife, three children, um, give or take a couple. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, just just without going through it, there were there were a lot of people in that household that witnessed and described the exact same events when interviewed separately. Okay, I find it very hard to believe that that's coincidental. Yeah, I mean. If you were conducting a police investigation and 11 eyewitnesses gave you the exact same account, I think you would legally go with that's what happened. Exactly. Right? Yeah, I mean, at that point, that's all the evidence that you need, you know, in in any type of, you know, today's scenarios that would be able to, you know, be able to put an answer to something. You'd be able to put someone away or anything like that. I mean, having that many witnesses with the exact same accounts, being able to tell it separately and years later, the exact same stories, nothing has changed. They've been concrete. That's that's what what sells it for me. So Lucky's daughter, uh, still alive to this day, she actually, um, she she wrote a book on the whole incident. And uh, just from the recounts and everything of, of just the whole incident, the whole night and everything, how it played out, uh, she's actually one of the only living or surviving members of the of the household or of the family that is willing to talk to media at this point. Okay, because uh, you know they went through that phase where or that point afterwards where everybody was very curious; they wanted to know more but yet ridiculed them and didn't believe them. It's the 50s. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the actual uh one of the actual policemen that were at the scene or that came out to the scene, maybe it was the next day. I can't remember specifically. 
Uh, but he recounted later on that a couple years previously, he's he's had a lot of UFO sightings. So he believed them wholeheartedly. Yeah. You know, it's it's a you know, they stayed as a hot spot for a lot of a lot of crazy, you know, just activity, Um, you know, diving, diving deeper into it, which I'm not going to do right now. But there's a lot of other things that really, really kind of, you know, become involved, including Cold, which, you know, not diving deep into, but a lot of that kind of plays into it. And so, and and he had, and he even explained that you know this is this is a hot spot. I, along with several others, have seen UFOs. We have you know we've literally watched UFOs above our heads, sitting there for periods of time before disappearing into the sky. And so, I think even that having that kind of just backup is huge. Yeah, it's definitely huge. I mean, the American South in general is kind of a treasure trove of UFO sightings. Oh, without a doubt, for sure. And there's so many and so many other incidents that really, really just kind of solidify even even this story or this account, which actually in 2012, there was another incident. And it was kind of that whole, have these Kentucky goblins came back. Okay, because as I mentioned at the at the end there, the Sutton family they ended up a couple months later. They stayed in the house, um, you know, just out of terror, out of just hoping and and praying that nothing else comes about. They ended up fleeing the house and never returned. Makes they sense. never went back to their homestead, and they, I mean, you know, that was their home. They right. lived there for a very long time, and to go away and literally never return. Uh, they were definitely startled, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. Um, but there was uh, there was an account in 2012, according to WeekendWeird.com. Uh, Greg Newkirk received an email to his website from his old paranormal investigative group uh, called Ghost Hunters Incorporated. If you're familiar with it, mm-hmm. uh, basically the contents of the email were were strange, you know, yet strikingly similar and familiar to the Kentucky Goblins incident. I'll go ahead and read uh, just a couple of these emails. There are a couple lengthy ones, but it really is definitely important to this story. Okay. Yeah, let's hear them. So the email reads, Hello, my name is David Christie. I received your contact information through a mutual acquaintance who assures me that you are well equipped to investigate peculiar problems. Furthermore, I believe you may have interest in these events beyond any compensation that I'm prepared to deliver in order to have these issues sorted. For the past six months, I've been living in a rural home located at the border of West Virginia and Kentucky, where my family is nightly assaulted by creatures that I have come to believe are of an extraterrestrial origin. These beings appear to be the size and stature of a small child, devoid of any facial features, save for large, oily eyes and lipless mouths. They frighten my children by peering through their bedroom windows, chirping at one another. They actively attempt to enter my home in the middle of the night, Last month, they took my dog. The police refused to provide any further assistance, attributing the problems to wild animals and forwarding my complaints to the Stage Game Commission. I believe they are coming from an abandoned mine located on the edge of my property. Though I'm armed, I'm afraid that I'm far too frightened to enter the mine by my lonesome and cannot convince any sympathetic friends to accompany me. Though I cannot blame them, I'm convinced the only answer is to collapse the mine. 
I believe this is where you could be mutually beneficial to one another. If you're prepared to assist me in this matter, I can offer you permission to record and document these events under the condition of anonymity. I can guarantee you evidence of these creatures, which I assure you are not wild animals. Please respond ASAP. Thank you. So, according to Greg Newkirk, uh, again, uh, previously from Ghost Hunters Incorporated, they had never investigated into UFOs or aliens or anything of the like. Right. Um, you know, he proceeded basically to write back to the man telling him, you know, they had no desire to hunt for aliens. Uh, and it was something they'd just never gotten into. So, you know, with this first, with this first email being so closely, closely related to the Kentucky Goblins of 1955, it's strikingly familiar. Yeah, it's very similar, for sure. It really is. And, you know, just the fact that this is also in Kentucky, right, right around the Kentucky-Virginia line. Um, which, you know, uh, Hopkinsville and Kelly are a little bit more south, okay. but still, you know, in that same kind of general vicinity. If they can get here from another planet, then they can probably go from southern Kentucky to northern Kentucky. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it also, you know, there are also some similarities between this story and what you alluded to earlier, which was... The, a separate version of Kentucky Goblins, right? The ones from the mines. Exactly. And those, those were kind of folklore, um, just stories that families would tell their, you know, their kids basically to stay away from these mines. But right. the fact that it was so common to tell that particular story. Maybe that story being so common in that area is why the fellow who wrote the email was so convinced that they had, were coming from the mines you know maybe that influenced that's entirely possible right you know i'm in this this was a doctor i'll just give you a little bit of background okay i was a doctor that it was very new to the area um you know didn't didn't really know anybody in the area he lived there for just a few months basically um so i'm not sure if he knew the stories behind it you know it's it's entirely possible Especially, you know, living in Kentucky, I'm sure that you've heard something throughout, you know, your life or wherever he originated from or lived originally. Sure. Um, you know, but it is possible that, you know, he knew of that. And yeah, that could explain, you know, why he thought they were coming from the mines. Just yeah. kind of putting two and two together, basically. Yeah. I mean, when you're raised in coal country... I think a big part of that is like when you're a kid, the mines are a big part of your life. Right. right. And the mines are synonymous with danger, right? It just goes hand in hand that they present one of the, you know, when we were kids in the nineties, you always heard about kids like falling down wells. (laughs) Of course. You know, right. There was always random stories every like six months or so. There would be some story about some kid trapped in the well and a fire department had to come and get them. Mm -hmm. Like, you know kids and growing up in coal country in like Kentucky and West Virginia, you know those kids all grew up with stories of like kids getting trapped in old mine shafts. Without a, and- without a doubt, exactly. And I'm sure it was very, very well known and you know, at that point they were told is, you know, basically just bedtime stories or or yeah. ghost stories, again, to spook you know, the kids, maybe to ward them from staying away and things yeah. like that. 
the classic um, use for folk tales. Exactly. Right? Protect exactly. children. Yeah. Yeah. I could Stay definitely see that. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Stay out of the so, woods. There are wolves in there. Yeah. I could, yeah. I mean, I could definitely see that that being a big part of it. Uh, there was a continuation to the to the email, okay. um, which dives a bit deeper. So after Greg wrote back, you know, letting them know that they didn't investigate into aliens or UFOs or anything. He, said, he just said pass. Basically. Right. Yeah. So, you know, his uh, the man's response, David Christie's response states, thank you for the prompt response. I do not blame you for being skeptical of my story. I appreciate you keeping an open mind about my situation. I'm more than happy to provide you as, with as much information as I'm able. I was given your contact information through a man by the name of Terry Rist. When these disturbances began uh, first occurring, I was only inclined to confide in a personal friend who I knew had fringe interests. He offered to share my concerns with a man that had dealt with somewhat similar experiences in previous years. I accepted his offer. Within a week, I was informed that this gentleman had long since retired from pursuits of this kind, but was willing to provide me with contacts with who may be willing to help. This is how I came to contact you. I do not have any answer to why, other than a referral and a recommendation from a gentleman I do not know personally. I was under the impression that you would have the answer to that question. I'm located in Pike County, just outside of the town of Hellier, Kentucky. Hellier is located roughly 30 to 60 minutes from the borders of Virginia and West Virginia, respectively. Most of Pike County is made up of small towns and rural communities. It is not uncommon to go days without seeing my closest neighbors. I moved to this area for the peace and quiet, and I've received neither. I've lived in this area for just under seven months, and in that time, the majority of the harassment has occurred within the past three. I did not become aware of any strangeness until early December, although that is only when I began to keep a record of these events. At first, it was merely strange tracks in the snow around my home. I'd initially imagined that they were from some kind of animal, though it closely resembled a human footprint, minus the heel. At that time, I was under the impression that it was simply a single creature. It wasn't until the weeks later that I began to suspect that I was dealing with a number of what I thought were individuals hazing me upon my arrival to the area. At this point, I was incapable of keeping my dog outdoors overnight. Any attempt to leave her leashed would result in barking herself hoarse until she was allowed to come back indoors. In the weeks leading up to this particular evening, I had awoken to find my shed doors open on several occasions. Many of my children's toys missing or moved, and my yard in general disarray. I had already given a report to the police, who were making it increasingly clear that they were not interested in my case, barring physical harm or large-scale theft. The second week of January, I am having breakfast with my family, when my five-year-old daughter begins talking about the kids without hair. When my wife inquired about these kids, she informed us that she had spent the previous night watching them play in the yard. As you can imagine, this was some, some concern. I asked my daughter what these kids looked like. She told me that they were bald like Grandpa and weren't wearing any clothes. The very same day, I found the wreath that hangs inside our rear porch stuffed in our mailbox. I purchased and installed motion-activated floodlights the following day, and for a time, the problem ceased. It wasn't until the end of February that our daughter informed us that the bald kids had returned. 
I was awoken to the sound of my daughter screaming and rushed into her bedroom only to meet her halfway down the hall. When my wife and I were finally able to calm her down enough to speak, she told us that the kids were trying to peer into her window, but they couldn't reach, and instead had taken to tapping on it. She hasn't slept in her own bedroom since. It was that morning that I phoned the police for the second time and they responded by finally sending a trooper to our residence. I informed them of the regular mischief, how I was unable to let my dog outdoors after dusk, and of the bald kids. When we found the ground disturbed just under my daughter's bedroom window, the officer informed me, very matter-of-factly, that we were dealing with an animal and I would be better off contacting the game commission than waste their resources any further. Almost every day for the following week I would find some evidence that something or someone had been on my property the previous night. Smudges on the windows were not uncommon, stones on the walkway dragged to the other side of the lawn, and I had found tears in the screen door. On Wednesday, the 7th of March, I finally witnessed the kids without hair for myself. The dog woke me up at around 1.30am, scratching at the back door and whimpering to be let out. I noticed that the motion floodlight was on and went to the kitchen window to check that the shed doors were still closed when I realized that I could see the shadow of an individual cast across my lawn. From the angle as positioned at the window, I could not actually see the source of the shadow or the floodlights. The dog was pacing circles around the back door and I could hear someone rifling through a box on the porch. Filled with more anger than common sense, the only reaction I could muster was to bang loudly on the window and yell, at which point I heard the screen door on the porch swing open and slam against the house. I heard what I could only describe as chirping at this point. It sounded much like a skunk, if more guttural. I then realized that there were more than two people on my property and the shadow which had been reacting as if it didn't know which way to run was quickly joined by another. For a moment I watched as the shadows chirped at one another when I noticed a figure out of the corner of my eye. Standing in the flower bed just to the bottom left of my window was a small humanoid figure with sickly pale skin, completely hairless, standing roughly about four feet. It was looking in the direction of the shadows and had clearly come from around the left side of the house opposite the porch and had not noticed me as far as I could tell. Its face was devoid of features, save for large round eyes, very reminiscent in the shape and color of a bird's eye. It had no nose to speak of and only a small slit for a mouth. It didn't appear to move its mouth as it chirped, sounding more as if the noises originated from its throat. It was most certainly not a wild animal, and even more certainly not a child. I was too terrified to move, and watched as the creature hopped to the others, and together they scrambled into the woods on the right side of my property. It was clear that there were at least five in the group. I have not mentioned this particular incident to my wife, and the only other person I've spoken about these creatures are yourself and the close friend who introduced me to our mutual friend, Mr. Rist. I'd prefer to keep things that way, and to, pro to approach this problem as discreetly as possible. Since that evening, my dog has gone missing from the porch, yet to return, and I can only imagine that his disappearance has to do with these creatures. I've gone looking for him during daylight hours, only to find many of my missing belongings scattered at the entrance to an abandoned mine shaft at the far edge of my property. I don't dare go inside. My friend has convinced me that my experience is similar to that of other visitation experiences, providing me with material and references that back up his claims. I'm aware of the outlandish nature of what I have told you, but I am afraid that I have no other explanation for what I have seen, at least at this time. 
I can see no other option than to seal the entrance to the mine. I cannot achieve this on my own, and I'm too frightened to try. I don't dare share this information with others for fear of ruining my career and the reputation of my family. I'm prepared to compensate your travel expenses and offer you unrestricted access with whatever recording equipment that you desire, but only on the condition of complete anonymity. Beyond that, I have no other desire than to be rid of this problem. Please inform me of what you would like photographs of and where to send them. Thank you again. That is quite a story. So it it does definitely sound very familiar to the Kentucky Goblins incident of 1955. Yeah, very similar. And with the way that he described, especially the children... You know that seems to be the common the common occurrence here is that they seem most interested in the children, and you know to have that tapping, that scratching on the windows. That's um, so creepy. I know in the the fifty five incident they didn't mention a chirp to their you know to their sounds or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, from my understanding, of the incident they were very silent. They probably had trouble hearing their chirping over the gunfire. And that's that's entirely possible. Exactly. Uh, so it, it very well could have been that same type of incident. Yeah. You know. So it, it does. You know. It kind of touches. It kind of touches on that that very familiar familiar issue, uh, which you know to have that further further solidify what they experienced in '55, something that is so closely similar, yet to happen 60, 70 years later. Of an entirely, you know, a separate incident, but yet all too familiar at the same time. Yeah, see, I I don't know. I find I lend a lot more credence to the older stories just because the original story is a matter of public record now. Right, and exactly. So it's kind of, you know, difficult to verify any honesty in the new story, right? Because yep. they could just be, you know, derivative of a story that they've already heard. But the one in 55 fascinates me. Yeah. Because, I mean, aliens were not a primary subject matter for almost anything at that point. They were entertainment. Right. Uh, and very moderate entertainment at that point, too. You know, they were still, it was still new. It was still something that wasn't widely talked about other than, you know, incidents from roughly the, you know, 1944 to, to the 50s right. at that point. And there were, of course, you know, UFO sightings and things like that. But that's when aliens were just first becoming talked about. I mean, the only the only alien movie that I can think of was The Day the Earth Stood Still was I think that was 51 that okay. came out. Mm-hmm. but. Alien, the alien in in that movie is, you know, I mean, it's, he's a human. It's played by a human being with a British accent. <laughs> but, yeah, <it's>... like <laughs> so, the aliens in that look nothing like the description. Now, the way they right. describe aliens in um, was it War of the Worlds? Mm-hmm. Was is the, the radio version of it? Right, right. right. Okay. The way they describe those aliens is like little brown guys mm-hmm. basically but they have like elect they had like electronic eyes so definitely i mean there's no like there's nothing to point to in the media before this report that they could be like oh well they just picked up that description 
You know, there's what I no mean? consistency. Yeah. Yeah. So now, and, yeah, that definitely you know definitely solidifies that uh, that whole original experience or the whole original incident. Yeah. And I mean, it's hard to tell the difference between like are all of the even in more modern more modern you know sightings and encounters it's hard to know where to draw the line between like are all these reports similar because it's what they really look like or Mm -hmm. is it because this is the way aliens are portrayed in the media exactly media has a lot to do a lot to do with that because you know if you see if you see something especially you know in, in the high point of you know of any type of alien phenomena you know it's gonna be it's gonna be you know you're you're gonna have something that's gonna at least influence how you describe or how you feel about you know particular event right right and i think that's kind of kind of what you're getting at yeah right any of us now if we saw something vaguely you know like a flattened cylinder we'd go it was a saucer right you know what I mean? Because we've we've heard that we've been exposed to that for so long. Oh, that's a, that's a saucer. Even if saucer isn't actually the best way to describe it, that's what it is. Right. Yeah, right. That's that's how we've known it for so long. Yeah. So, like when you hear, you know, the there are literally thousands of reports of grays, right? These tall, thin, big head, big eyes, like. Are they all the so most sp- widely known alien right. species to ever exist? Right. Right. But are those reports so similar because that's, you know, that's really what they are? Or is it because that's what we think of when we think of aliens for the most part? That's a good question. And, you know, that's something I, I don't have the answer to. Right. Uh, neither, of neither one of us have the answers to. Right. It's, you know, media does influence the way that we perceive and the way that we see things so much that, you know, it, it not even not even just aliens. I mean, it's everything, you know, and that's that's even a deeper conversation. But at that point, there wasn't all of that. There was no mainstream media that, you know, saw aliens as this or that, or, you know, they look this way or that way. Right. You know, at that point, it was just however, you know, they were perceived or however they were seen, but there were no outside, you know, factors to really influence that. Right. Certainly significantly less. Right. Outside factors. Yeah. Definitely. I did have one other question. Because... And now you mentioned to this this to me offhandedly before. I think it was probably last week. But something about owls. Was there a theory that these were owls? <laughs> so you know there there was there was a theory uh, based uh, based around owls. Instead of aliens, they were actually great horned owls. So the great horned owl has long wings, glowing eyes, and round heads. Um, however, you know, in this case, it wouldn't be possible because the Suttons describe the creatures as being three to three and a half feet in length, um, which it honestly is significantly larger than even the largest oversized great horned owl. Um, and additionally, owls don't don't just float midair like like these creatures do or uh, or, or said to. Um, and on top of that, when owls attack, they actually attack from above. They swoop down quickly and uh, quickly, rapidly, 
and they're they're back you know they're back perched or they're back in the sky so you know unlike this scenario where they were very slow um they were also described as floating as they were walking almost uh like an almost float instead of a you know just a step by step um which again owls don't just float they can soar, they can, you know, I guess, quote-unquote, float momentarily as they're attacking their target or their prey. Especially, you know, one thing was owls respond, you know, in this kind of type of way if their their nest is, is, is um, you know, is messed with or if their habitat has been, you know, destroyed or affected in any way or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, but again, you know, owls aren't that big. They don't do these specific things. And it was just a very absurd, and uh, at this point, you know, kind of diving deep into it, a uh, very mocked theory uh, that is still mocked to these days because of how absurd it is. Okay. Because I'm not going to lie, when you first were describing what they saw, I heard pointed ears because great horned owls have the like. Yep the points right exactly and, and the glowing eyes and the height i think they're what they get what like probably two feet tall yeah, i think it's roughly about ones. two feet is the tallest right yeah so i mean anything in the neighborhood of four feet is gonna obviously not be an owl right but that is what first popped into my mind when you said glowing eyes and the points right that's mm-hmm. that's the first thing I thought, but I mean it's it's also all perception too, right? Of course. You know, this was this was the night, in the middle of the night. The sun had already went down, uh, darkness had already ensued. It was it was such a you know, they were also on the edge of uh, of a forest or a woods, right? So yeah, I mean it's you know if you kind of look at it like that. You know, that's a possibility, but... And again, do we believe that these are the only two teetotaling carnies from the 50s ever? And that they really hadn't been drinking? And I'm still, I'm on the fence there too. Uh, But, you know, in this case, it was stated that, um, you know, the matriarch of the house, uh, Glenny, she didn't allow alcohol. She did not allow cursing on her property. Right. Um, and so that was that was a big thing, you know, and especially back then with her being basically this head honcho of the household, right. you know, it's basically what she says goes and there's no other option. Right. Um, especially, you know, the fact that she allowed, you know, multiple families to live with her, um, you know, Lucky and JC being the two primary uh, sons of hers from a from a, another marriage. Um you know, is it is it is kind of almost far fetched to believe that that's not a possibility, but at the same time, I like to try and you know try and think of it on in that regard that you know she didn't she didn't allow this she was very against it um, and that it was just a you know a nice family family dinner you know with some friends in into t- you know in town basically visiting you know visiting their homestead and everything. I would like to think that that's actually how it went down. Um, but so that begs the question: were, were was this family considered like upstanding citizens of the area? Well, the way that the police described them was 
you know, they they were well known. They were not the type to basically ask questions and take charge later. They were more so, you know, they they were right there, guns in hand, ready to go. Right. And they weren't, you know, they weren't the type to even go to the police for something as absurd, you know, as as it might be uh, for that particular, you know, that particular incident. Right. And so, you know, I would like to think that as, you know, at least they're well known. Okay. They are known to that extent, you know, being that, you know, even the police said they were completely sober in their report, that okay. they were completely sober, that no one had been drinking. You know, I'd like to, I'd like to at least think that's a pretty established fact at this point. Okay. Yeah, I'll buy that. But, you know, it is, it is hard to say. You know, it is the 50s. Like you mentioned, they, they were... You know, previous uh, work together in a traveling uh, traveling carnival. You know, I mean, I'm sure, you know, that maybe there was some under-the-table drinking going on sure. that nobody knew about. But right. <laughs> that's neither here nor there. And we don't know, you know, that. but it is entirely possible. There was a, actually a little bit more to that, uh, that email. I'm going to go ahead and throw that out there just to give you the last little bit here. Okay, okay. So it was at this point that Greg Newkirk from Ghost Hunters Incorporated, uh, you know, he he was starting to starting to have some uh, almost belief in the story. There's a lot to back it up. It was very interesting. Uh, things were kind of starting to get a little weird, a little heated. Um, you know, he had basically he had emailed back David Christie, claiming that he'd never heard of anyone under the name of Terry Wrist. Um, and the details the man spoke of were so in-depth and strange that it, it did pique his interest. Upon even doing just a quick Google search, and again this was in 2012, for the name Terry Wrist, there were only small footprints, uh, most notably a book that was actually written by Alan H. Greenfield, titled Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts. Uh, so in the interviews, Wrist had uh, spoke of a guerrilla group of Vietnam veterans formed in the early 70s, whose directives included the infiltration and destruction of underground alien bases in and around the southern U.S. So at that point, it was, it was far too coincidental. Uh, so, you know, he did, he did end up replying to David Christie's email, um, requesting evidence. Uh, it did take some time for David to email back, uh, but he did finally reply, uh, stating... My apologies for the time it's taken me to reply to your previous email. The situation in my home had become unbearable and we chose to stay with my wife's family out of state and until an appropriate solution can be reached. I'm at my wit's end. This afternoon, my brother-in-law and I traveled back to the house for the first time in over a month as I needed to check on the security of my property and gather some belongings. The house seems relatively untouched, leading me to believe that the creature's motives were driven by my presence of my family. As you requested, I brought a camera back to the property for the purpose of photographic evidence. While my home was free of tampering, I was able to find a trail of prints that matched the size and shape of those previously left by the creatures on my property. The prints led me into the woods behind my home, following a stream that runs near the mine. My brother-in-law, an avid sportsman, cannot identify the tracks despite his skepticism. Perhaps you know of someone better suited to identify these prints. I will be spending the next two nights in my home and will send more images should the opportunity present itself. I'm looking forward to your thoughts. So at that point, Greg had emailed back, uh, just you know, requesting additional photos and uh, possibly photos of the prints next to a yardstick. 
uh, okay. to kind of judge the approximate size. So the yeah. man at that point sent one last final email before never replying again, despite Greg's numerous efforts to get back in contact with him. Okay. The email reads, The creatures came out of the woods late last evening. I have enclosed photographs taken to the best of my ability given the situation. I have also enclosed photographs of the creature's footprints alongside a measuring stick. My brother-in-law is not as skeptical as he was when we arrived, and we will be leaving before dark this evening. I look forward to hearing back from you. And then never again. And never received a response back. Wow. Um, So these prints were actually analyzed um, by someone that is... uh, you know, analyzes, you know, I, I guess biometric, uh, you know, handprints, footprints, fingerprints, things like that. Sure. So in these particular prints, there are uh, evidence of uh, specific linings in the, the foot, whether it be creases, whether it be, um, you know, uh, I guess like stress lines, things like that, that are almost nearly impossible to recreate and okay. recreate well. Um, and it's, they've never been able to debunk these photos and never been able to figure out where these photos have came from or what they belong to. So even to this day, they've not been able to provide any definitive answer to what these footprints actually belong to or where they've originated from, which to me, I mean, that seems like some pretty damn good evidence, uh, yeah, yeah and supporting evidence of David Christie's story in this case. The prints are crazy. They really are. Like, I definitely recommend everyone go and check them out because they are... It kind of, like, gives you a... You know, it's like a real-world physical representation in your mind of what you... Of what what could possibly be creating it. Right, exactly. Right. I only wish... That in that 1955 incident with the Kentucky Goblins, that they could have at least recovered or discovered some type of footprint just to have something to compare these two incidents to. Because, you know, I know that I I went on about the Kentucky Goblins, but I talk about this 2012 incident just to kind of further explain that because I find it so uniquely coincidental to the point that it's not coincidental. Right. It's right. literally the same occurrence that the Suttons dealt with on, you know, on their farm that night in 55. Yeah. No, I really like the addition of the 2012 story cuz it really like brings the original story into focus. A lot more attention is given to situations like this now than they were in the 50s. Oh yeah. So, you know, you kind of get a very similar maybe the same, you know, situation happening again. And you get a lot more, you know, people are actually investigating and they're they're looking into it. So, yeah, what's what's also crazy, if uh, if you're familiar with the Project Blue Book, um, there was actually uh, they did a, you know, just an account of the Hopkinsville incident is what it's referred to as. I was going to ask because you mentioned initially that two military police came along with the two military police. And do we know if uh, they were Air Force? So originally, from what I had read, is they were Air Force. Um, Additionally, what I had read is they were um, they weren't. And I, I can't remember specifically. But uh, according to the Project Blue Book um, incident that they that they wrote about was two additional Air Force, at least two, 
two men from the Air Force ended up coming back onto the property. Uh, this is either the next day, it might have been a week later, I, I will have to double check my facts there. But they had went back to the property and kind of note, you know, noted the incident. Um, actually, if you if you look at the Project Blue Book, for anybody that's not familiar with the Project Blue Book, um, you know, just in short, it's basically accounts of uh, UFO incidents, also uh, you know, multiple uh, alien species, things like that. From uh, the, I can't remember the exact date, but I'm wanting to say from early 50s up until what 65 ish, something I like think that. So. 65 or 67. Uh, so, yeah, it's basically just an account of different types of a UFO activity. Right. It's um, a project within the U.S. Air Force that investigated phenomenon. Exactly. And yeah. so the fact that they had two, yeah, at least two men from the Air Force come check out the incident. Uh, they went onto the property, uh, but they weren't able to dive into it. Uh, basically, from what I've read... Uh, so the the Project Blue Book, the organization didn't want the word to get out that they were hunting "quote unquote" spacemen or monsters, uh, which I, I find I find strange. But again, this is also at the beginning of Project Blue Book too. Well, you know, before kind of became even a big thing. Yeah, uh, one one thing that I've always found very strange about Project Blue Book is they were always very protective of their public. Uh, uh, their public appearance. Oh, of course. They were always like, um, you know, because they were fairly open about, I mean, not at the time, but since, you know, they claim that it's closed down now. Right. Since it, all this information came out about Project Blue Book, they admit that this section of the Air Force was dedicated to, you know, to investigating alien sightings to investigating all these paranormal situations but they're very like they tend to like draw a draw a line in very odd places mm-hmm. like oh we won't we wouldn't go that far they do that over and over again oh yeah that's for sure and i mean especially with things being you know essentially declassified these days Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I mean, there's still so much, you know, essentially redacted information that uh, should be publicly available, but it's not still, um, you know, and it does. I mean, it does make sense, especially with this being something that was, uh, you know, from a particular you know point, especially with the Air Force. I mean, they're they're always hush hush. Yeah. And Absolutely. you know, as you mentioned, there you know they get to the point where there there's a line that they draw for things to be normal and non-normal of what it, maybe they interpret others will think is normal and non-normal. I you know it, it is kind of it is kind of odd, but right, that's what I mean. Like the lines they draw are always kind of baffling to me. Like mm-hmm. when the reports that I've read of theirs, it's like like I imagine. X-Files if it was Scully and Scully. Like, <laughs> I I understand that, like, okay. you know, it's good that they had skeptics, you right. know, running this. That's, that's ideal. But it's certainly less fun for us. Like, I wish one person writing reports for Project Blue Book was an Agent Mulder who was just totally convinced, 
You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, because you know there wouldn't be there would be at least two sides, right? Yeah. yeah. So and there would be a lot more, you know, a lot more answers to what we seek at this point. I think you know, given if that was the situation, I just um, want some speculation. You know, exactly. Like that, that's where all the fun is—is is in the speculating. Oh, I agree wholeheartedly. It's uh, you know, but the fact that you know this incident known as the Hopkinsville incident um, in this story. It's the Kentucky Goblins uh, is in fact noted in the project blue book and as uh, is noted as unidentified. So, I mean, there is, you know, that much proof there's proof and the media, you can go back and look at old newspapers. There's uh, I, I was actually going to bring uh, Glenny, um, the matriarch of the house. I was going to bring uh, her actual report to the police, but I mean, it pretty much matched exactly as I explained. Everyone had the exact same account of what happened. Right. Uh, so I, I felt it basically unnecessary at this point. Um, you know, which is it's just a, such a crazy, you know, crazy thing at this point uh, to be able to have you know all this supporting information, especially even the 2012 incident to back it up. I think is huge. Yeah. And again, we'll we'll have all these photos and everything available uh, just for everyone to actually be able to see. But it is you look at it, and it's very hard to think of anything else, in my opinion. Um, you know, it's just such a unique, especially footprint. Also, um, as you're looking at those, there's a couple others. Um, so you'll notice a, an image of, of something appearing around a tree. And you yeah. can make out the full body of what appears to be what we would perceive as a gray. And you can see it's a side profile. 100% down to, you know, down to the side, you know, fully um, to the eyes, everything, the whole body. And they're literally peering around the tree. Um, yeah, and it's pretty bizarre. It, it, yeah, it's phenomenal. Um, there's also the additional section there where it kind of pinpoints in uh, the different, uh, different types here, basically showing the analysis. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was done by Robin Montella. Uh, so you have the yellow area that looks like the creatures in front of the tree and behind, you know, essentially behind a bush or a smaller tree. Um, and you can see what appears to be a shoulder uh, there and that this creature basically could be looking at, you know, to the left and away from the camera, which is kind of kind of what I see when I look at it. Yeah. Um so the part in red kind of seems like uh, leaves blocking, which that's what I immediately thought, too. It's definitely a tree branch kind of coming over the face. Maybe some leaves, in the, you know, leaves covering a little bit of the face. Um, but as you look at the actual additional photos in that section, you can kind of see the way that they've put them. And you can see that there are, in fact, things covering the actual face. Yeah, they're it's bizarre. And so... I mean, you know, the fact that David Christie was able to capture that along with the footprint and even the footprints that have the the measuring stick next to it, uh, you know, even giving an idea of the size, which I mean, is roughly what, about six to seven inches. I mean, roughly, give or take, uh, yeah. and it's a little bit away, but, you know, and which 
is entirely possible. You know, these these creatures, especially even even in the Kentucky Goblins incident or the uh, the Kelly incident of 1955, they could have been small. They could they didn't really explain their feet at all. Just right. that they had long, lanky, long, long, lanky legs. Mm-hmm. You know, extended arms that basically went from their shoulders down to the ground with the the talons for hands, basically. Right. You know, they didn't really explain the feet, which in this case, they the feet could have been this exact same size, which is not entirely impossible. Yeah. Because, you know, even being a smaller creature, you know, they had over-embellished features. Um, Glenny, uh, again, the matriarch of the house, she actually, one thing that I found super funny, is she described, um, she had described the creature as looking like a five a five-gallon gas can with the head, some legs, and some arms. <laughs> Like that's how that's how uh, and I mentioned, you know, in their midsection they had a very uh, they had a much larger, a much more toned midsection. Uh, so and I think of these little chubby things running around, <laughs> like uh, you know. But they, that's yeah. I mean that's definitely possible. See that reminds um, me of the Close Encounters aliens. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah, with, like the chubby little pot bellies. Yeah, <laughs> which it's funny that you mention that because there's uh, actually Steven Spielberg um, at one time wanted to do a follow up to the Close Encounters of the Third Kind movie, right? Um, so he wanted to do a movie, uh, you know, based around the Kentucky Goblins incident and wanted to call it Night Skies. Um, mm-hmm. However, basically, it just it never ended up actually panning out. He ended up using elements from uh, from what he was going to use for the Night Skies movie uh, to do E.T., Gremlins, and Poltergeist. If you you know if you believe that, which is crazy, well, there you right? go. Um, which to me is fascinating. It, it, there's actually rumors of another movie being made at the moment, or in production, or pre-production, or something that's going to be centered around the Kelly incident as well. Nice. See, I just wish the the fellow that um, reported the 2012 incident, I just wish he hadn't vanished. So there is actually, uh, and not to plug, but uh, there's an Amazon documentary called Hellier. Uh, if you're at all interested in this story, I highly recommend it. Uh, Greg Newkirk and his wife, along with uh, their film team, go out to Hellier, Kentucky, which is where David Christie had claimed to be from trying to track him down trying to find anybody that knew of him um you know just uh, some spoilers which i mean if you're interested in the story you're gonna watch it regardless so uh but some spoilers is that they can never track this person down you know it's like as if he never existed uh he was most likely using a false name right same as terry wrist yeah. terry wrist uh the one that apparently put them together uh put david christie in contact with greg newkirk uh even claimed under multiple multiple uh you know multiple occasions of using a fake name right um and so and that's what i assume david wrist or sorry david christie <laughs> did in this case but you know the i know if you watch it it's it's bizarre because there's so much cool shit that happens it's so worth a watch they're actually uh two seasons in right now uh you know just getting deep into hellier they actually dive into entered cold 
Mothman, all that shit, which is fantastic. Oh yeah. But again, it ties together. Uh, but I'm not gonna de- I'm not gonna dive into that right now. I'd like to touch on that later because yeah. there's a lot of cool shit that really really gets involved there. I wonder if the guy decided to take on the mine himself. I've wondered that same thing. I mean, there's a good chance he could literally have been trapped in the mine. Yeah. Um, he could have he could have went because the mine. Uh, so the area that this is in is the. Uh, so think uh, if you're familiar with Mammoth Cave. Yeah. So Mammoth Cave kind of Cohen kind of just intertwines with all these these uh, old mines and everything. Yep. And apparently is another another hot point for, you know, yeah. these goblins or these aliens and then a lot of people have claimed that aliens have set up basically camp and civilization underneath uh, you know in these these mines and also under mountains. Right. Um, there's a uh, and what North Carolina. There's actually a uh, a military or an more so a fringe base um, under a mountain that right. also uh, you know it, it kind of mad or kind of ties into the uh, Mammoth Cave along with the uh, the mountains and the the mines and Kentucky. Literally everything kind of just intertwines. Uh, which to me is fantastic and very fascinating. Yeah, um, super and mysterious. That's, that's where we dive deeper into other things that we're not going to do right now. But um, one other really cool fact about uh, Kelly, Kentucky, where where all this 1955 shit uh, shit went down. Uh, every year they actually have a festival called the Kelly Little Green Men Days, <laughs> which is fucking cool. Yeah. And I want to go so bad. So yeah. it's yeah. it's a legit festival. I mean, they have they have live music, food. They have many many food vendors. Um, they have rides and stuff like that. But it's basically a bunch of alien loving people getting together to show their support for what went, what went down on August twenty first, August twenty first, nineteen fifty five. That's amazing. Uh, but they actually they had to cancel it last year just due to COVID. Right. Um, but uh, they're hoping to be able to get it back up and running this year. Excellent. Uh, they've been they've been ongoing for I guess ten years now. Nice. Uh, so yeah, which is pretty solid. Yeah. Um. You know, and and again, it's another another thing that you know for this to be so widely known, so widely like you know, and I'm sure there's so many paranormal groups or alien chasers, you know, ufologists, anybody that go out there just looking for these little green men. Um, but the fact that this town in the middle, you know, in the middle of Christian County in between, you know, next to Hopkinsville, like the fact that this tiny little town has this massive festival just to celebrate this shit is awesome. It is. Now, is this story where the term Little Green Men actually originated? So, Little Green Men, um, it, it's kind of a mixture between the Kentucky Goblin story, or the Goblin, the, sorry, the Mine Goblins, okay. along with the Kentucky Goblins, or the, the, the aliens in this case. Okay. But yeah, that's, that's essentially where it originated. Well, we at least owe them that. That's right, exactly. Part. That's a huge part of you know. It's alien. Yeah, it's big for sure. Yeah. Well, that's so, awesome. 
one of my goals one day is to actually be able to go to that festival, I think. I'm going to make was, it happen. <laughs> this was an awesome story. It's fascinating stuff. Well, good. I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I, I mean, I enjoyed my time putting it together, diving into the information. I want to... It, I mean, it's inspired me at this point to really dive into that whole area. Yeah. Uh, because there is so much, so much potential that comes out of it, and just being such a, a massive hotspot, you know, is uh, it's it's definitely fascinating, and I I'm definitely looking forward to it. But yeah, this has probably been one of my one of my favorite things I've done in a long time, or favorite things I've actually looked into. Awesome. Because there's so much information, so so much supporting information. And that's amazing, why I had uh... to share the David Christie story too. Yeah, it's amazing that like this much came from essentially one police report. You know, just well, that original were, case. You know, all the police along with military police, deputy sheriffs, you know, right. so, so many that were dispatched out. I mean, that right there is a big red flag. The yeah. fact that they also had military police go out just on what could have possibly been just a uh, a random dispute. Right. No, that they knew odd. that there was something else. Yeah. You know, there is something else involved there. Is, the fact are, that they would even go that far. So this base that was nearby, was it an Air Force base? Uh, so it's actually out of uh, Fort Campbell. Um, so it's not an actual Air Force base. It's uh, the Army, uh, which is actually their only air assault division. Okay. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was the closest by... Um, and then, uh, according again to Project Blue Book, they ended up having two, at least two Air Force gentlemen that came onto the property as well. Okay. So, because, especially back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, it's, like, pretty much common knowledge that military bases keep, like, really close monitoring of local police chatter. Like, right. What's go? What the police are doing at any given time? What they're responding to? All that. So, it makes sense that they might hear something, you know, something crazy is going on, and they would tag along. I mean, I I just find it hard to believe that, you know, again, well, because the way that they kind of the way that the police had described it, they were curious if maybe it was a possible dispute. Uh, like a neighboring dispute, um, you know, and so basically guns blazing against, you know, neighbor to neighbor. Right. Uh, so for them to dispatch so much and to have, you know, in this case, the army involved, uh, but they were an air assault, which does, I guess makes it a bit different. Yeah. Um, see, that's what I'm saying. Like the police hear the story and they think, oh, it's probably, uh, you know, a dispute between neighbors, something like that. But and the they military hear it, they, right. and they think, oh, yeah. we should probably tag along for this and see what's really going on. Yeah, and that that very well yeah, could have been I'm, too. I'm, you know, it's hard to say because yeah. without having so, as much information, obviously they're going to be a lot more hush hush. There's not going to be anything that they're you know that they're going to personally release or anything like that that's going to you know help us find answers to what really happened. But, you know, only out of speculation, I think that is a damn good explanation or possibility of what, you know, what could have, uh, you know, could have caused them to actually come along. Because that was one of the things to me that really stood out 
you know, because just yeah, yeah I, I can see several law enforcement, uh, you know, maybe a couple deputy sheriffs, whatever else, you know, especially guns, right, especially exactly shots right. Being fired. Lots, there was yeah. over a hundred shots that were fired, a hundred shots fired that night, um, at these creatures. Yeah. Aliens. We'll just call them aliens. They were dealing with yeah. them for hours, yeah. right? I, I mean, it started at roughly about 7 p.m. And they didn't go into the police station until roughly 11, 11.30 p.m. So, and... He's a tough guy. To, <laughs> up, right, exactly. <laughs> I would have been shitting my pants. I would have been out there. But right. <laughs> I would not battle aliens for four hours yeah, before I mean, calling up, the you know, police. 7 p.m. basically to that point... There was just nonstop activity. Uh, they had reported roughly about ten to fifteen of these creatures that they saw um, in the yard, randomly everywhere, and you know, and there was just there happened to be that lull in in activity, basically, where they were able to run out of the house and book it, you know, fucking hightail it to the police yeah. station, um, which. Yeah. Man, that I don't wild. know. I don't know. In that case, that good the police. I mean, I'm seeing little little creatures. What are they gonna do about it? But you know, that's also now. This is this is back then. What else are you going to do, right? Yeah. But I mean, even even with that said, what are we gonna do today if that happens? Exactly. Besides, be like, hey guys, what's up? You know, I'd be I'd be completely know. open for it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Take me away. I'm into it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean that's 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 the story for today. Um, I appreciate everybody everybody tagging along, listening. Hopefully, uh, we were able to provide uh, some information here on the Kentucky Goblins. Hopefully, piqued some of your interest as well. Certainly, uh, piqued maybe mine. to there we go. Maybe to even even look further. Um, there's a lot of information out there. Definitely dive in. It's a fantastic, such an interesting story. I'm a firm believer at this point. I I 100% am on board. How about you? Ah, I'm a little on the fence, to be honest. The footprints, I'm sitting here staring at them. I can't stop looking at them. Yep. They're, so I'm I'm leaning your way, for sure. Good, good. For well, sure. That concludes episode two, the Kentucky Goblins. Thank you, thank you, thank you. From the bottom of our weird, possibly alien, maybe ghostly, probably cryptid hearts for listening. We absolutely love having the chance to discuss all these wild creatures and events every week, and it's your continued attention that allows us to carry on. We want to get to know each and every one of you, so please come and check us out on all the socials at campfire.tales.podcast on Instagram and Facebook, at campfire.totsau on Twitter, and you can also visit our website at campfirepodcastnetwork.com. If you love the show, please rate and review it. It's what truly helps us continue bringing your weekly dose of the strange and unsettling. And a special thanks to Greg Martin at Reverent Music on Instagram for his contributions to the beautiful music that you hear every week under the debrief. You can find more of his tunes at ReverbNation.com slash Reverent. It's fantastic, fantastic stuff. Go give that a listen. And that's it. Until next time. I'm Ryan. I'm Jordan. And remember, campers, stay weird and trust in the unknown. unknown.